Hi and welcome again to the podcloth. Today's program will see us delving into the unexpected, liminal and uncanny areas. During Unsound Krakow, we got the chance to speak to Kristen Galerno, where she gave the talk Sonic Spectres. There, she talked about the strange sonic phenomena that haunts space around us, from the mysterious hum reported in so many locations around the world, to unusual structures with possible occult or UFO origin, to all synthesizers and the picking up of noise from black holes. Kristen, a media historian and artist, is the curator of the communications and information technology at the Henry Ford Museum in Detroit. There, she creates the collection of objects and gadgets like computers, radios, televisions, transistors and synthesizers. And the museum is one of the largest historic collections in North America. Spiritualism has run in Kristen's family for generations and her world seems to be surrounded by things like visionary architecture, local micro-histories of sinister small towns, thing theory, vernacular technoculture, aesthetic failure, contact magic, monster magazines, sound studies and visual legends and legend trips. And through her writing she has covered an extensive range of topics like uh, the audible history of paranormal culture and the visual history of telepathy research. Late this year will be a very busy time for Kristen. Her forthcoming book, High Static Deadlines, will be published by Strange Attractor Press in October, and her essay compilation, Unsound Undead, will also be out in fall on Univocal Press. On the other hand, and in tandem with her book, High Static Deadlines, Kristen told us via email that she's working on a video and analog synth performance about the phenomenon which occurs near Detroit and across the border in Windsor in Canada, known as the home. Blown out images of sound waves, salt crystals forming, salt mining and local heavy industry, it will again take us down along ghostly paths. So uh, my name is Kristen Gallerno, and I, uh, and as my sort of day job, which is way cooler than a normal day job, I am the curator of communication and information technology at the Henry Ford Museum, which is near Detroit, Michigan. So uh, I have a book coming out uh, sometime between 2017 and early 2018 uh, by a strange attractor press, um, which was my first choice for a press, which is great because they like the sort of esoteric histories and sound histories and science writing and things like that. Um, so the book is going to be called uh, High Static Deadlines, unless they tell me to change it, which I'll fight to death. <laughs> so, um, and it is basically about the collision of uh, uh, material culture, sound-based artifacts, and sort of uh, esoteric belief in history all wrapped up into one. Um, and then I also have a creative practice. Um, I am trained officially uh, as, a, as a printmaker, um, so I come out of a printmaking background and that informs some of my work in, in funny ways. Um, after that degree, I decided I wasn't a big enough nerd, so I went and I got a folklore degree, which is kind of like one of those degrees, like what the hell do you do with a folklore degree? Um, so the way I took it is uh, into the realm of uh, sort of material culture. And at that time, I was doing a lot of writing about sort of figuring out my foothold in this idea of paranormal culture and how we can investigate that through academic lenses and um, so that sort of took a, a visual um, culture form at that point and those things have since shifted to uh, sonorous sort of territories. I suppose it's important to mention um, that 
my sort of autobiographical mm -hmm. background is it's going to be a big part of my book and um, it's directly related because I come from a very long lineage of uh, spiritualist mediums. Um, so my mom read cards, my mm -hmm. grandmother read tea leaves, and it goes back and back and back on this one side of my family, all the females. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of the black sheep. I took it into academia. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. And it's, it's a hard line to walk sometimes, especially given my job at the museum, mm -hmm. because it's like, how can this sort of... Uh, custodian of public history be up there talking about ghosts but really it's it's the culture of those things and the mm -hmm. apparatus behind it that I'm really interested in and, and uh, I was having an interesting conversation with somebody earlier about how you know science can only take us so far and yeah. sometimes the culture of science becomes interesting as well so, mm -hmm. yeah. and for you what's the line or what's or what defines a sonic object um, so I'm really interested in not always necessarily just pure sonic media, but mm -hmm. I'm very interested in the collision moments between belief, material, culture, and sound. So uh -huh. it's sort of like this trifecta. Mm -hmm. So all of the objects that I write and I talk about tend to have some kind of rooting in, in reality. Um, even somebody like Konstantin Rodov is using a media, uh, you know, mm -hmm. is using tape uh, to mm -hmm. sort of collect these artifacts in the environment. So um, I'm really interested in this idea of like the embedded signals and codes within objects mm -hmm. and using uh, different digital media um, or even analog synthesis to sort of tease out those codes mm -hmm. and sort of literally, it sounds kind of cheesy, but listen to objects and what they have to say to us. And maybe it's just a squelching feedback loop, but then we right. can sort of like take that feedback loop. And in my artistic practice, I mm -hmm. sort of malform those things and misuse things to sort of get uh, information back from it, whether it's creative or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Could you choose what one of your favorite of these? Um... Oh, um, for me, I mean, the sort of golden you... beacon is always the Moog, mm. the Moog or the Moog uh, synthesizer. Yeah. So I'm the curator of, uh, co-curator mm. of the uh, 1964 prototype Moog synthesizer. So it's the very first Moog synthesizer mm -hmm. that was developed by uh, Herbert Deutsch and Bob Moog in uh, the Trumansburg uh, basement laboratory in their cellar. Um, and it was a very fruitful collaboration and sort of sparked off, uh, you know, this sort of Moog synthesizer. Mm -hmm. And um, Moog music continues to be operable today. <laughs> so, um, so it's kind of, it's interesting because it's like, hard to find um, these sort of moments of sonic specificity. And I think the Moog synthesizer is interesting because it's the beginning of a way that things sound. It's this idea of voltage control filtering sounds and people hadn't heard things that way before in that way. Um, when I first got to the museum, um, it was created and in storage and I've sort of made it my um, curatorial role, I, I co-curate that object with another curator at the museum. She's the museum, uh, musical instruments curator. But once things start to get like transistors and knobs mm -hmm. and tubes and wires, yep. it's sort of this collaborative atmosphere. Uh -huh. So so the Moog is really important. Um, I'm a horror movie obsessive. I had two older brothers and I remember being asleep on the couch and waking up to the cabin rush scene in Evil Dead. Yeah. And so that's one of my very first memories mm -hmm. and just like not being able to process it and just screaming my, my head off and I probably scared my brothers, they were probably stones sitting on the floor or something. Um, so, um, so some of my early foundational memories are also out of horror films. And um, I just love that sort of like the, the idea of synthesis to convey this sort of like anxiety and mm -hmm. dread. I make dark electronic music, um, but it's also very playful. Yeah. And so, yeah, so I think the Moog is tied up mm -hmm. in that sort of 
history, you know, people like Mort Garson sort of tapping into these mm -hmm. areas of the occult. And of course, this all existed yeah. before the Moog, but it's it's an interesting touch point. Well, yeah, and I think and also like most of like the horror movies or like the idea of a horror movie, it's very linked to a particular kind of sound, which can be yeah. very varied, but like the, the, the sonic presence, either if it's like the paranormal mm -hmm. or just like the, the, the soundtrack. Yeah. Yes, like I think for me, like a very in, associated, a very strong inherently like a, a, a sonic component yeah. in them. Yeah, there's been a few really strong, you know, horror films in recent years. You know, Stranger Things, of course, became uh, well, its own yeah. phenomenon <laughs> and they're here. Um, but then also um, It Follows. Mm -hmm. And so I think some younger musicians are getting a stab at sort of entering their mm -hmm. sort of uh, sonic voice into the mix. Yeah, I don't know if you know, know um, uh, Umberto. Umberto, was, it's this basis, he's like his music in, in well, like horror movies. Okay. And he does like, he, he doesn't do soundtracks, he, do, he does albums, but like in a way of like Umberto? horror Umberto? Umberto, yeah. Okay, uh, I'll write this down. It's very interesting. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> and um, how do you find like, your research, all these like paranormal events? There's sort of always this idea of like, looking for things that shouldn't exist maybe mm -hmm. as a starting point so um earlier in my art career i did a lot of research in strange archives so i mm -hmm. spent some time working in the american society the american society for psychical research um their archives in new york and um you know it's just sometimes there's just like a trigger point like reading about a medium that was supposedly able to manifest these giant ice sculptures like how does that happen or i did a lot of writing about uh telepathy research mm -hmm. and the visual apparatus and the machinery of that so there's a gentleman named ted sirios who's been written about here and there who supposedly had this ability to um, brain blast images onto Polaroid film. And there are some interesting impossibilities in that. And I think, you know, as a technological curator, I'm interested in the way that those media apparatus uh, sort of work their way into that history. And even, you know, 19th century, this has been talked about enough yeah. by other people, but the idea of like the body as, you know, sort of a technological device. Mm -hmm. I think um, one of the funnest things that I found in the ASPR archive um, was this uh, Morse code, you know, like a telegraphy yeah. thing. But uh, this woman medium from the 19th century had this big bouffant sort of hairdo and uh -huh. she had hidden a uh, Morse code device inside of her hair and she had a string going up and over a chandelier and then her assistant was on the other side of the room tapping out answers on the top of her head. <laughs> so they were totally like, sharking, you know, their audience. Mm -hmm. But then it's like the creativity behind yeah. Um, harnessing like that technology, mm -hmm. yeah. You do feel feel recordings yourself I as do. well. And yeah. Have you ever like experienced like something like that you couldn't like, totally like I, explain I, or like there was or, or, or what would be because like you you explained one before. So what would yeah. be like one that you were like particularly like? Yeah, I think one of the freakiest sort of sonic events I've ever had is. Um, I lived in this house that I was restoring in a place called Chatham, Ontario, which is a tiny town in Canada, and um, no one had lived in it for a while, and there was a house that was also owned by the same landlord, just like in the backyard, kind of, and no, it was abandoned, nobody lived in there, so one day I, I was like, I'm gonna go in there, and the door was open, which was weird, and I kind of just like snooped into the basement, and I was down there with two friends, and we went to pass through this sort of basement threshold door, and so I was in the center here, and my friend was over on my left side. Um, no, reverse that. I'm sorry. I was on the left side. My friend was here. And I heard this, like, like sonic sort of screech just travel through my ear. 
and it just made me jump. And my friend was next to me, and he was like, oh, my God, I heard that, too. It was almost like it traveled through us. Oh, wow. And there were no animals or anything down there, and who knows, old houses. Mm-hmm. But um, it was a very potent sort of mm-hmm. experience, and, and it was captured on video. And I've lost the VHS tape it was on, and I've, like, made it, like, my purpose to, like, go through all my storage. Like, where I need this now. <laughs> so um, I think that was an especially potent sort of Yeah, I time. think it's... it's, it's it was like internal. Almost. It was Uh like it started in my ear. And I also, I have this weird hearing condition called Meniere's disease, which Mm -hmm. plays funny tricks on my ears, but I did not have it then. (laughs) So, um, and you have like someone else to to corroborate. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm talking about a little bit more of your like work or in in general, which which has been one of your more challenging projects and and, and why? Um, I think the project I'm working on right now, actually, Mm -hmm. um, it's it's sort of this wonky three-part thing that draws on some of the the research from my talk and my book today, which is um, it brings in territories of the hum, the infrasound Mm -hmm. event, um, a stake that was planted at a mythical lake um, and sort of sonifying that stake. And then uh, the third element is I have this large collection of dirt samples, literal soil samples, that I've taken from places that are supposedly haunted. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to build this analog uh, synthesizer that will allow me to process that haunted dirt. And I do have one module from a guy, I feel like I need to name check him, uh, named Martin House. Um, and he's developed this sort of like little module that you can use to sonify dirt, but it, it's not quite there yet. And I'm not an engineer and I don't know how to solder or uh-huh. build things on circuit boards. So I'm, I'm like hoping one day I have this magical collaborator appear out of nowhere and says, I can help you sonify that haunted dirt. <laughs> um, so that's a big project I'm working mm-hmm. on right now. And that will work into my PhD um, defense, which is happening pretty soon. So. You're telling me about this um, a sound investigative collective in Nauri Mills, like the Audience? Audience? Yeah. yeah. Could yeah. you tell us a bit um, more about so it? So I'm not actually part of Audience, mm-hmm. but I've written about Audience. So Audience is, uh, it's it's usually Toby Toby Hayes and Steve Goodman who works as Code 9, and then they have sort of a revolving cast of characters that joins mm-hmm. them. Um, and so they had uh, encountered some of my writing, and um, they asked me to write an exhibition essay about them for an exhibition they had in uh, in Windsor, Ontario at a, g- a gallery called Artsite. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's um, an essay that nobody has seen, but Audience says is the best thing anyone has ever written about them. So I'm like, thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it kind of sparked off a friendship when I wrote that essay. And so now we, uh, you know, we collaborate on this um, sort of anthology book. And then um, that anthology book, Unsound Undead, which is going to be out in the fall of 2017. Um, there's going to be uh, traveling exhibition and performances and uh, the book release as well. So there'll be some fun events mm-hmm. around that when it happens. Yeah, sounds, yeah, sounds really... What did you do with the Studio Swine? I also saw that. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's also another recent thing. Um, so. I was introduced to them through a mutual friend who runs a gallery in New York called mm. R&Co, or she works there, but she doesn't run it. Um, but uh, she had heard that they were doing this exhibition about Fordlandia mm-hmm. and being a curator at the Ford Museum. Uh-huh. Um, we do have archives related. So they were trying to reach out and see, like, what do you guys have, in, you know, in terms, because we have all the Ford Motor Company's um, company records there. 
Um, and so there was interesting fiber samples mm -hmm. and sort of materialistic things that they are very interested in and, and they hadn't realized existed. So I also wrote an exhibition catalog for them for uh, the London Fashion Space Gallery. And yeah. they just had an opening and there's a beautiful catalog. Mm -hmm. And um, we, we actually, we, we, we were there. Oh, you were? Yeah, yeah, I am, I, I'm excited. I mean, just, uh, yeah. <laughs> supposedly it's traveling to New York and I'm hoping to get to see it there. Um, so, yeah. so they've been great. So it's kind of been an interesting, it, I'm not really the curator of Ford Landing but because of my connection and ability to sort of, um, you know, I, I have this art background, so it was definitely an art project, mm -hmm. and so I got brought in on that and helped them with their research. And now moving into a little bit of this, how Detroit has impacted in your in yeah. your artistic life or like your conceptual framework as well a little bit, uh, it, uh -huh. if, if it has any. Yeah, like, it, I guess like it's it's a city that, I don't know, like me, like intu in, not intuitively, but like what I can, can think is like it, it probably is like has a very can have a very profound impact in, yeah. the, in their inhabitants. So <laughs> it's curious to, to know about it. Yeah, yeah, it's a funny city because there are a lot of people who make work about Detroit who are inspired mm -hmm. about it in that way, the Detroitness of Detroit. Mm -hmm. um, I don't really make work about Detroit, but I've never felt so inspired in another city to actually continue to make work. And I think that has to do with a lot of the artists who are working there, but also just the landscape. Um, as somebody who's very interested in sort of charged and powerful mm -hmm. landscapes, Detroit is definitely that. There's a lot of contentious territory there. Um, I spent two years living in San Diego, and I think it was like, it completely killed my studio practice because it felt like this space where like, in Detroit, you know, I sort of came into this DIY scene via Canada and it felt like there's so much potential, a little bit like New York in the 70s. And then I moved to California and like, there's no space. There's no, there's nowhere for me. I'm not a rich kid and I can't do anything here. Um, so I'm really glad to have found a job back in Detroit again. I know I wasn't sure I was ever going to be able to return, but then there's things like the hum, you know, that are happening across the river. So there are interesting phenomena that are happening there that inform my work directly. Yeah, um, so the HUM is an infrasonic uh, event uh, that is happening. It's actually called the Windsor HUM, and it's this sort of uh, mysterious event that causes sort of physical distress in people who can perceive it. And not everybody can perceive it, um, but it's sort of caused by, um, supposedly it's been linked to um, this U.S. steel factory, which is bleeding VLF radio waves across the border into Canada, and it causes this sort of like, low sort of thrumming pressure in people's eardrums. Um, but it's also a global phenomenon. The hum is sort of like something that happens everywhere. And some theme this year is like is dislocation. Mm -hmm. And uh, could you tell us like an, like what's your image of, of dislocation mm. or an image of yeah, dislocation? Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's a few things. I mean it's my work I think is very dislocative and it sort of yeah draws on that more than I've really thought about. <laughs> um, so even just from a language perspective as a as a curator I've had to learn um, sort of engineering language, like what is a variable capacitor, what's a polar relay, um, you know, all these crazy, what is uh, electrophonic transduction and spectral distribution, and so I'm not a scientist, um, but I definitely occasionally uh, appropriate and maybe misuse or use it to my own uh, toward, uh, you know, the language of science. Um, I try to remain as accurate as possible, obviously. Um, so there's that, and then there's also, you know, the, in terms of my, my field work and sound recording, I tend to, like, I think a lot of people who do sound recording, um, I'm, I'm partial towards sort of like dissociative landscapes that I'm not familiar with. So I've done a lot of sound recording in the desert, which being from Northern Canada is kind 
kind of a very strange place. I did a lot of work out at Arco Santi in Arizona and then the domes in Casa Grande, Arizona. Um, but then even just in terms of like processing that sound and where I process it when I'm finished with the recordings and how I try to tease something out of nothing, um, I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, one other thing as a um, my, my job at the Henry Ford is that um, I... So I have all these historical collections, but we are a collecting institution. We continue to grow our collections. We have 26 million objects, but we're always growing those. And a big drive for me has been um, contemporary collecting. So one of my favorite things is, uh, if you've heard of the Atari dig, um, it, they took all these Atari cartridges out into the desert in New Mexico and buried them in 83. And it was this big scandal. And my parents owned a video game arcade when I was a kid. So I grew up with this folklore, like, did it happen? Didn't it happen? And um, it did happen. And then uh, people dug them up. So when I found out that this was happening, um, I got a hold of the man who ran the dump where they were, and I had this great phone conversation with him. So I brought these um, crushed Atari cartridges into the museum's collections, along with a big pile of authentic landfill dirt um, from the Atari site. So this is sort of like this idea of objects that were in circulation at one point and were forced out of circulation, and now they're back into cultural circulation via the museum floor. So I like those kinds mm. of messy rat's nests of, of objects. Yeah. I think they're great, yeah, great images of uh, yeah, this location. <laughs> and also, like, being a, cura a curator, what would be your, big, your biggest creating extravaganza? Or, um, like, if you could, you could create anything, it could, could be... Yeah, it, it sounds kind of lame, but a big one is coming up right now, and I'm really excited about it. I've been working on it for, like, close to two years now. Um, so I also do a lot of writing about design, histories. Um, so uh, in 1961, Charles and Ray Eames created this, uh, their very first exhibition called Mathematica. There were two versions of it, and uh, my museum has acquired the third version. The first parts of it were made for the 1964 World's Fair at the IBM Pavilion. And um, when we, it's got this very storied, complicated life, but basically, I've spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress doing research on this exhibition and this very forensic level visual research, but then we've also been working with our staff at the museum to bring all these interactives back to life. Um, so it's been this amazing process to see happening in real time and it's been part of my everyday and it, it's supposed to open in uh, spring of, of this coming year. So that's exciting and if I had to do sort of like what would I curate if I could curate anything, I think it would have to be some kind of exhibition on the history of synthesis and maybe the visual, the ideas of visual synthesis even. And okay, just like a, a couple of like last questions, yeah, like or Prussian questions that we, that we love to like just <laughs> Um, to give our audience just, to, just a little bit hints on like the personality of, of uh, the artist that, okay. that we that we like. So um, um, first, but like, what what is your chief enemy of creativity? Um, so it's it's funny to talk about this this openly, but um, so I have an autoimmune disorder, and I, I hate to, <laughs> I hate to sort of be one of those people who defines myself by my illness because that's not it at all. But it's really forced me, especially given um, you know the field that I work in 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 terms of like sonic research and wanting to go out to shows and wanting to you know play out. It, it really sort of I wouldn't say it limits things, but it definitely gives it forces me to approach things in a different mm -hmm. way because I have a very limited amount of energy in any given day. 
Um, you know, there's, I have a hearing uh, sort of thing as well, so I have to be careful of how much sound I actually expose myself to, which is a funny thing as a sound artist. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that can be really frustrating because if things flare up, I mean, it's always like I'm juggling all these things and it's like you have to learn to just kind of slow down and be like, it'll be okay, it'll, it'll get done. So. Well, I, can, can I, can I cannot imagine like you, like, like the amount of things that, that you would do, like if you, like, if you say that you have to slow down a bit because like, yeah, like your yeah. amount of, of work is like, it, yeah, really, really, really impressive. It's really <laughs> frustrating because <laughs> there's nothing I want, you know, I don't want to sit on the couch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the last one, like one thing that you couldn't read without. Um, you know, like most people going to Unsound, music, my music collection, my record collection, um, I have a husband who, you know, luckily takes up the steed of like, you know, finding stuff when I'm too busy to do it. Um, sound recording equipment, but I think most of all, I have to say like this amazing writing crew that I've kind of fallen mm -hmm. into. Um, I met a guy named Dave Tompkins a couple years ago and he's been a really amazing mentor in terms of uh, writing and just like talking through crazy, crazy shit that like nobody's talking about. Weird military history and like music and like landscape stuff and, and musical choral, whatever. Um, but then um, also my colleagues at the museum, just the daily conversations I have there um, with my colleague, Mark Gruther, um, who's I work really closely mm -hmm. with. Um, those things have been like really amazing. And it's sort of like this post-academic network of people, which I think is a really important thing to form. And um, I, I never really saw myself as having this very warm sort of like writing family. It's been, yeah. yeah. No, it does. It's something that it does feel feel really, really, really amazing. Yeah. When you find it, it's like very, really rewarding. Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I <laughs> know. It makes me feel warm. I'm yeah. not a warm, fuzzy person, but it's like, yeah. oh. <laughs> <laughs>